Hey folks, I'm Elijah Ford, attorney at law and managing partner at Atlas Law, and I'm bringing you All You Gotta Do Is, your resource for navigating life's little legal mysteries. Stay tuned and let's make the system make sense. Welcome back to another episode of All You Gotta Do Is. And I have to tell you, friends, I am here in the studio and I'm feeling festive today. I'm in my my holiday sweater. I, I skipped on the Santa hat, though. I, I wanted to keep it profesh because uh, we, have a, we have a guest with us today. Uh, James, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, yes. Um, thank you for um, having me on your show today. And um, I did not wear my uh, festive Christmas holiday sweater, so I feel kind of out of place in a shirt and tie. You will be forgiven. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I was very excited when I was invited here to talk about um, the topic that's on um, display today and to kind of share some of my, my experience. I am a criminal defense lawyer. I've been practicing law for about 18 years. About 14 years um, have been dedicated to um, either criminal defense and prosecution work. Um, I was introduced to criminal law as a prosecutor where I worked 12 years in Pierce County. Um, I covered everything from uh, as a new deputy from DUIs and domestic violence cases and as a senior deputy, um, homicides and robbery cases and drug cases. Um, as a defense attorney, I'm able to use my experience um, to help guide people into, um, you know, defeating false charges and allegations and some people who um, are in need of mitigating their um, their actions and in, in hope and hope of a, a more appropriate sentence so they can move on with their lives. And some of you might be wondering uh, why I would have a criminal attorney on for a festive episode. But I will tell you this, friends. Some of us, when we're feeling festive, might decide to imbibe. Maybe maybe a little sip of something, maybe something else. I don't know what your choices are, and I'm not here to judge you for them. But what we are here to talk about today is what are some of the potential consequences if we imbibe and then drive? So... James is here um, to to visit with me today as we talk about DUIs or driving under the influence or driving while intoxicated. Uh, so we're going to start with a little bit of classroom time and talk about uh, the background of drinking laws and DUI laws here in uh, the United States. And then James is going to walk us through uh, sort of the the practical application, the what happens if uh, you find yourself caught in in an unfortunate situation, if you will, and um, and then you know we're also going to have some resources for you, and then uh, James is going to give you give you the plug. So let's let's start with the class in session, and like most things in the United States. We're going to start in the colonial era. And in the colonial era, there was no drinking age. Uh, but that slowly began to change um, 
after the Revolutionary War and certainly after um, the Civil War. And it, it changed state by state, territory by territory, uh, with Wisconsin being the first state in 1839 to establish a drinking age of 18, which is, you know, well short of what we think of today as uh, the standard drinking age of 21. So here we go. We're, we're fast forwarding through time. Alcohol use was becoming rampant. Um, poverty and the availability of cheap alcohol created some negative social impacts. And combine that with women's increasing political engagement at the time, and the temperance movement is born. Um, the temperance movement was basically a movement that pushed for um, either <clears throat> the elimination of alcohol as, as a substance that was available or at least some sort of safeguards around its sale or its usage. Uh, so the temperance movement was pushing more and more states to adopt minimum drinking age laws. And the temperance movement was also the, the folks that brought us prohibition, <laughs> which we'll talk about a little, um, a little later. Actually, we'll talk about it right now. Prohibition, spoiler alert, if you guys have not gotten to this part in your history lessons yet, it was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. I think I think we can all agree on that. Yes. So, so the but the temperance movement they continued to gain momentum until eventually in 1918 um, they were able to put enough pressure um, on Congress such that they passed the 18th Amendment, which banned the um, sale and consumption of alcohol, except for medicinal purposes. And you can believe there were a lot of uh, <laughs> pharmacies and dispensaries that were popping up all over the country um, to just fit very neatly into that little loophole. Uh, so from 1920 to 1933, prohibition was the law of the land. And that also, you know, gave rise to, I mean, of course, there were gangs already present, but organized crime really did uh, hit its stride with the advent of prohibition because nothing makes something um, as lucrative as when it's illegal, <laughs> right? Yes. So as I said before, it was a complete disaster. People were drinking with reckless abandon. Crime was going up. And then finally, Congress very quickly, um, for constitutional standards anyway, changed course um, and then the 21st Amendment was ratified, and, which again made the sale and consumption of alcohol legal. But what prohibition did, or even, even after, it, after it ended, it highlighted the, the sort of the, the negative social impacts of alcohol, and it prompted a lot of states to say, okay, well, now that alcohol is legal again, we should at least rein things in a little bit. And so that's where we really start to see the uptick of um, states imposing legal drinking ages and, you know, and raising them from 18 up to 21. 
um, there were still a, a few states that had that lower drinking age of 18. And, you know, the thinking, the rationale behind that actually, I think, makes a lot of sense. And they did that to sort of coincide with the voting age, which was 18. The thought being, well, if you're old enough to vote and make decisions that will affect the course of the country, you can have a pint, right? Um, however, the federal government stepped in and in 1984, which is a lot later than I think most people would uh, expect, but yeah, it wasn't until 1984, which was certainly within my lifetime, um, where all states were required to raise their legal drinking age to 21 or risk losing a percentage of the, the federal funds that were available to them for highways. So as you can imagine, all the states complied. And now if you are a North American teenager, you can only drink if you are in Canada or Mexico, or you are close to one of those uh, those countries that can easily make a trip. I'm not advocating anything to the young people listening. I'm just stating the facts. <laughs> so um, along with the, um, in the, the universal drinking age, we also have um, DUI laws that are beginning to, to come into effect. So prohibition is behind us. The, 20, the 20th century is roaring ahead. Motor vehicles are becoming more readily available um, to the masses. And so the combination of alcohol being available, cars being available um, in uh, to to larger folks numbers of people, you know, now at that nexus we have another public health crisis, right? Which is more people on the roads and more people driving, more people drinking while they're driving on the roads, and. You know, for a, lo a long time, drinking and driving was considered like a like a folk crime. And I'm using air quotes here. And it was thought of as like, oh, it's a rite of passage. You know, young people, they're going to drink and they're going to drive. It just it's just what happens. Um, and that was the thinking for a long time. Um, but this is not to say that there were not. DUI laws on the books. Um, as early as 1910, New York State was um, one of the forerunners um, and adopted a law against drunk driving. And then California and other states soon followed. Uh, the problem, though, was that the, the laws, these early laws, simply prohibited driving while intoxicated. But there was no set definition of what intoxication was, right? So it's it's it was more of a subjective standard, which any any lawyer listening, and I'm sure James, you would agree, any subjective standard in the law is is going to keep folks like us well paid. Yes, it will. <laughs> yes, any any type of ambiguity, um, that's when attorneys are called to answer those questions. Indeed. But in this case, a scientist stepped in to answer the question. Um, and in 1931, Rola Harger um, 
forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that name, but he was he was an American biochemist and he created, and I love this name and I'm so sad that we're not using it anymore, but the drunkometer. <laughs> <laughs> I want to circulate the petition to just re- revamp that name. Um, so this early basically breathalyzer functioned differently than the modern ones and it relied on color change um, due to a reaction between the alcohol and the breath and the um, and and some potassium in the mixture but it lacked a quantitative scale and it simply could say whether there was uh, the presence of alcohol but not to what percentage right so Later, um, the the breathalyzer was further developed by another American, Robert Frank Borkenstein, in 1958, and he coupled a photometer with a reaction um, between the alcohol in a subject's breath and um, the potassium dichromate. So that allowed for a quantitative measurement of blood alcohol content. So the blood alcohol content, was it 15%, was it 5%, was it 8%? Now we can tell. So now with this new tool, the states could draft more precise legislation to address this drink driving issue. And in 1972, states began to pass what we call as per se DUI laws. So the, the state in, in these instances, if there's a per se DUI law um, on the books, and James, you can you know, flesh this out some more if you feel like I'm, I'm missing some bits here. But if there's a per se DUI law on the, book, on the books, the states didn't need to prove necessarily that the alcohol impacted the driver's ability to operate the motor vehicle. They only needed to prove that the driver was operating the vehicle and that his blood content was above the legal limit. And these per se laws are still in effect today in all 50 states. And that is now because the breathalyzer was able to be precise about how much alcohol. So then the states were able to legislate what level of alcohol content was going to be the per se bar. And of course, the way that laws work in this country, everything for a while went state by state. So some states had their alcohol limit at 15%. Some states had it at 10%. Um, And then of course, Congress had to step in again to to sort of level the playing field across all 50 states. And then also um, citizen groups got involved. In the, the 80s, we have Mothers Against Drug dri- uh, Drunk Drivers, MAD, um, Students Against Drunk Drivers, SAD, and you know, much the same way that the temperance movement was operating in the early part of the 20th century and the latter part of the 19th century. Now, these citizen groups are putting pressure on Congress. And then in 2000, President Clinton's transportation appropriations bill required all states to lower their um, permissible blood alcohol content to 0.08. 
And they had that, you know, they had until, you know, 2003 to get everything in line. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they, they came to that number, that point zero eight, because they concluded that that was a magic number and it would reduce the alcohol-related um, fatalities by 7%, translating to about 500 lives saved each year. So... By October of 2003, uh, 45 states had passed the 0.08% blood content laws. And then by 2004, all 50 states um, had passed that legislation. And again, the, um, the, what, they, what the states would risk losing was a percentage of the, the funds dedicated to maintaining the highways. So nobody wants to lose that money. Everybody got in line. And so here we are today. We have breathalyzers. We have a universal drinking age of 21. And we have a universal blood alcohol content of 0.08% for, um, for a per se DUI law. Now, of course, the other thing that is popping up, and this is not obviously in every state, but it is here in Washington, marijuana is now legal. Um, and my understanding, and I'm hoping that we can talk more about this, is that now <laughs> we're, we're in a similar position with the marijuana as we were in the early days of alcohol, trying to figure out, okay, well, how how do we know and how do we um, fine-tune our laws around the reality of the situation. So we've we've talked uh, about the history. Now let's make it make sense. James, let's break it down. You know, when we talk about um, the laws surrounding DUI and the test requirements, um, the legal limit is um, if you're above 0 0.08, then you can be um, cited for DUI. It's a threshold number. Um, we have a per se law that sets the legal limit. Um, anything above 0 0.08 is um, grounds for citing a, a driver for DUI. However, some may ask the question of whether or not they are required to take the test, to take the breath test. And in Washington, any person who operates a motor vehicle is deemed to have given consent um, to the law enforcement to take a breath test if they are being investigated for DUI. So let's 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 back up and let's go, let's start from the beginning. So you let's say you have come from a holiday party, you've had a few. Mm -hmm. You're driving along, and then you see the lights in your rear view mirror, and you get pulled over. What? is the first thing that you can expect from the person pulling you over if they suspect that, uh, well, actually, let me, another question is, w when someone is pulling you over, what, what triggers them? Like, what, what, what are the things that they are looking for? Like, what, what are the things that make them think, oh, I suspect that this person might be under the influence? Let's start there. What, what triggers that often? Okay. so. Anytime a person, anytime you are um, at a party or at an event where there's alcohol served, first thing I'm going to tell everyone is that there are so many resources for you to avoid getting behind the, the, the wheel of a, of a vehicle. 
Um, you have Uber, you have Lyft, you can call a friend. So first of all, I would encourage anyone, if you're going to be drinking, make appropriate um, <clears throat> plans um, to get home safely. Um, if you do decide to drive, then you're at risk of being cited for DUI. And it's a very costly endeavor. Um, let's talk about what is a DUI, okay? Now, <clears throat> if you're driving a vehicle after having consumed alcohol or marijuana, then it's possible for you to be cited even if you're not above those threshold limits, 0 0.08. And for marijuana, it's a, a THC levels of more than five nanograms. How are they testing the uh, THC levels? The THC levels are tested through blood tests. So what the uh, investigating officer will have to do is have some type of evidence that you've consumed marijuana. Mm. Okay. So let's go back into the decision. Okay. So first of all, if you're smoking marijuana and you're drinking alcohol, make appropriate plans to get home without driving yourself. If you choose to drive and you're driving along the road, one of the things that I'm going to encourage you to do is this. If you're driving and you feel that, hey, I'm not safe, this, is, this may not go well, then <laughs> you can pull over off the road, okay? If you pull over and park your vehicle safely, let's say in a parking lot or on the side of the street. Now, if you're on a freeway and you pull to the shoulder, you can still get sighted. But if you pull over and park on a public roadway, not a, not a highway, or in a parking lot, then you could be deemed, even if you're over the limit, safely off the road. Okay. Now that has to happen before you see those flashing lights. If the flashing sure. lights yeah, are behind you. It's already too late. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> then pull over. Yeah. But um, so those are ways that you can prevent this whole situation from happening. Well, so, okay. So I actually had a client and I was representing him on an unrelated matter that he said that he was parked in the parking lot but the car was on because he was listening to the radio and they did cite him for a DUI because he was operating the vehicle. Well, but the, he was not driving the vehicle. He wasn't driving, he was sitting in it parked, yes. but it was on. And so <clears throat> that would be a, a situation where I would file a motion to dismiss on the mm. grounds that my client was safely off the roadway. Okay. 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 So there are there are some defenses which I hope we're going to get to later. But in terms of what you were saying, like what the the signs, the things that the officer is going to be looking for. Yes. So if you make the decision to get in the car and drive after consuming alcohol and marijuana, and you don't pull over once you feel that you may be impaired, then that decision is going to go to law enforcement. They're going to be looking for three different things. Okay. And I'm going to categorize them. First one is vehicle in motion. Second is first contact. And that means at the, at the driver's side window. And third will be the breath test, okay? So let's go back to vehicle in motion. Um, when law enforcement um, is um, a, a sees a vehicle or it's reported that a vehicle is driving erratically, so what they're looking for is speed. So you could have speed, you could have um, improper lane changes, you could have erratic lane maintenance. That means that you are going in and out of your lane mm. of travel. Uh, <clears throat> you could have going 
you know, far below the speed limit. So if you're on a freeway and it's 60 and you're going 40. <laughs> I've seen those folks, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> those are things that could lead an officer to pull you over and begin an investigation for DUI. Now, when they pull you over, if there's grounds to pull you over, and they need grounds to pull you over, the, the, we go into the next phase, and that's um, first contact, the contact with the driver. Okay. Now, contact with the driver begins from the first conversation they have when they walk up to the window all the way through the field sobriety test, and I'll get into that. So when an officer pulls a person over for um, suspected of DUI, um, usually they're going to ask questions. They're going to ask you for your license, registration, proof of insurance, and they're going to casually ask you, have you had anything to drink? Okay. Now, what the officer is doing at that time is they're looking at your eyes because in every DUI police report, they make a comment whether the eyes were bloodshot, watery, or red. They also make an observation of whether they can smell the, the odor of intoxicants. Mm, so okay. can they smell alcohol? So these are some of the nonverbal things that they're looking at um, from um, when they're observing the driver. Now, when they ask a driver, have you had anything to drink? They're, and most people are going to say, if they've been drinking, I had one beer. Well, at that point, if you have bloodshot red eyes, watery eyes, um, <clears throat> maybe you fumble over your documents trying to retrieve your, your registration and, and insurance, um, those are all things, those are all signs of possible impairment, which will give them legal basis to continue the investigation for DUI. Okay, so now you have um, the vehicle in motion. If you committed one of those, um, you know, potential traffic infractions, um, or um, if you are reported by, let's say, a, another driver is driving erratically, that could right. be grounds too, even if it's not observed by the officer. I forgot to mention, a lot of times there are car accidents. So if you get in a collision, um, that could be grounds for that investigation, that investigative stop. And then we have that first contact. Right. It's not a good idea to speak to law enforcement if they're investigating you about a crime, okay, without the presence of an attorney or advice of an attorney, okay? So I'm not, I can't give you legal advice, but what I'm going to say is what I would do, okay? So if I'm driving my vehicle and, and um, I've had a, a couple drinks, I'm likely to tell the officer, I don't want to answer your questions um, without the presence of an attorney. Okay. Hmm. And now what I'm doing is I'm making the officer have to do a more thorough investigation to, because at that point, that, for, that, that conversation that I'm having with the officer, he is looking for, he or she is looking for grounds to either continue the DUI investigation or probable cause to arrest me for driving while impaired. Okay. Right. If you tell him you've been drinking and you've been speeding, that together could provide probable cause to arrest you for DUI. Ah, okay. Okay, so let's go back. So let's say the officer goes to the car, he's questioning you about alcohol, and you indicate to the officer that you had been drinking. The officer is going to then ask you, would you uh, perform field sobriety tests? Now, most of the time they'll ask, tell you that they're voluntary. Um, there are three main tests. The first test is, it's, I, I like to call it the eye test. It's called the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. 
Okay. And basically what they're looking for is uh, prior to 90 degree onset, they're looking for your your uh, pupils to start to shake. Oh, so this is the one where they hold the finger in front of your face and ask you to follow it yes. from right to left? Or... Yes. Okay. There's no way for a lawyer to recreate that test. Okay. So it's a very difficult test to defeat. If they indicate that there are there's a possibility of six clues and you um, demonstrated all six of six clues, then it's very difficult to, to refute that. Next um, is the walk and turn test, okay? And they would have you walk in a straight line going heel to toe, and then you turn around and repeat the steps. Again, it's a very subjective test. Mm -hmm. And they're looking for you to lose balance or... Lose balance. Yeah. Now, this is very important. The, the, the third one is the one-leg stand where you're asked to count and stand on one leg. <laughs> Let me tell you that I've gone to trial on many of these cases, yeah. and the trooper in the courtroom has difficulty performing these tests. Now, I want you to imagine the outcome of an individual who's frightened on the side of a freeway, cars going by at 60, 70 miles per hour, Mm-hmm. It's cold outside. Right. It's two o'clock in the morning, right. and you're trying to perform these tests. Right. I, even if you're sober, I was about to say, even if I'm sober, I think I would struggle. Any type of misstep, if you miss a heel to toe, that's a potential clue that goes to the analysis of whether there's probable cause to arrest you for DUI. So I tell, I would suggest, you know, that you don't answer questions without the presence of an attorney. So if they ask you if you consumed alcohol, you don't, I'm not telling you to lie. I don't suggest that you lie. I suggest that you take a breath and say, I do not wish to answer your questions without a lawyer. You cannot be penalized for that. But they would still give you the field sobriety tests no, after that. They will ask you oh. because they're voluntary. Right. And that voluntary test, I believe that it's impossible to pass it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's voluntary. And the, the answer is no, because why would I subject myself to a, a test which is going to be impossible to pass? So what happens then if you say no? Well, the, the officer has to make a decision based on limited information, right? So now the officer sees you're driving. So if you've been driving, if you've been speeding um, and they don't smell uh, odor of intoxicants on your breath, um, they don't, your eyes are not bloodshot red. You have not admitted to drinking. You have not performed the field sobriety test. Um, they have very limited information. And even if they do decide to arrest you, now your attorney has something to work with. Okay. Um, but the analysis is not complete. After the field sobriety test, which I would suggest you do not, um, take, um, <clears throat> There is a portable breath test that they would give you. And this is the breathalyzer that we talked about earlier? Or is this something? This different? is something different from the breathalyzer. The okay. breathalyzer happens post-arrest at the police station. Okay. Okay. And we'll get to that. But when you're at the scene, the officer will say, well, why don't you just take the portable breath test and I'll let you go? That's going to be the way that they're going. If, if you're below the limit, I'll let you go. Okay. Okay, I just want to make sure you're safe. They're going to use all those phrases and all those those um, tactics to get you to agree. Once again, it's a voluntary test. You're not required to take that portable breath test, okay, which is different from the breath test that's administered 
after the arrest. Okay, and that's an important point. Okay. It's voluntary. They're required to tell you it's voluntary and it's not admissible in court. But just because it's not admissible in court, it can be used for the determination of whether there's probable cause and to arrest you um, for DUI. Interesting. Okay. Most people are afraid to go to jail. Yes. Yes. Because the, <laughs> yeah. because the officer is going to tell you, listen, I just want you to get home safe. Mm-hmm. But they're conducting an investigation. And if you've been drinking and you believe that there's a chance you may not pass it, don't give them additional ammunition to establish probable cause to arrest you. You could be arrested without participating in those tests, the field sobriety tests and the portable breath tests. I'd rather you, and I would suggest that you take that risk rather than giving them further ammunition. Now, let's say I'm driving, I have not drank any alcohol, I haven't consumed any alcohol, I haven't uh, partaken any marijuana. Then, you know, if I'm feeling that confident, I could say, hey, just bring the portable breath test, I had nothing to drink. I'm not doing any, I'm not answering your questions, I'm not taking a field sobriety test, just bring the portable breath test. And if you're below the limit, you could be scot-free. However, you can still be arrested for DUI even if you're not above the .08, okay? Okay. Now, there is a, there is a way that you can be charged that you've been, you were affected by. There's an affected by prong, okay? So you have the per se law .08. Right. That's the baseline. Right. Um, and then you have the affected by. But you also have a negligent driving, <laughs> Which is, which is putting, um, you don't have to establish the 0.08 threshold for a DUI. It's less. So it's basically driving and your driving, your driving is compromised after consuming alcohol. Okay, so if you're driving after consuming alcohol, your fear is not just a DUI. It could be a negligent driving. Right, okay, okay. And, and so that's why I would only take those tests that breath test if I'm if I did not consume any alcohol. But okay, so we're 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 talking a lot about alcohol. Um, but the this breath test that you're given in the field prior to arrest, again, you can't. That's not marijuana or or cocaine or any of those other substances aren't going to show up. And that, and in order to take someone's blood, you're not gonna. He's not gonna have a kit and a needle and gloves and everything in his in the back of his car, ready to take his you take your blood sample on the side of the road, right? Correct. And so, it's a different. It's a little bit different for marijuana. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to you know the vehicle in motion. Let's say that's already been established that the officer believes that they have observed one um, some driving that's an indication of impairment. Now we go back to first contact. No, so instead of looking for you know the the smell of alcohol, they may smell marijuana, mm. and then we go through the questions: whether have you consumed any marijuana? Most people will say yes. I smoked a joint earlier this morning. <laughs> but you want to treat it the same way with the alcohol. Don't answer these questions. I would suggest that you don't talk to law enforcement if they're investigating you for a crime without an attorney. And that's a that's a general rule that you have a right. They tell you that. 
law enforcement is required to read you your Miranda warnings. And the first thing they tell you, you have a right to remain silent. You have a right to a lawyer. They're telling you that because it's very, very important. Now, they're not going to tell you that when they start questioning for DUI because they're not required to give you Miranda warnings during the initial investigation. Miranda warnings are only required after you've been arrested. But those rights still exist prior to the arrest. They just aren't required to tell you that. That's key. Yes. key to know that. So you can request an attorney, okay? And, And you can tell them. Once you tell them, I want an attorney present, they can't ask you any further questions without the presence of an attorney. Now, they may arrest you because they're upset because <laughs> you, 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 they feel like you, you prevented them from investigating you and they might arrest you so they can get you to the breath test, okay? Or the blood test. And that's when the, the, the blood test for the marijuana, you know, the THC levels, they have to take blood, draw blood. So let's get back to, let's get back to marijuana. Marijuana, in order for the the officer, the analysis of whether there's probable cause is a little bit different, okay? Most of the time, it's going to require a drug recognition expert, which is a certification that not all officers have. So let's say you have the Tacoma Police Department, a city, local, municipal police department. They may call on if they're confronted with the possibility of someone may be impaired by consuming a drug or marijuana. It could be any drug or marijuana. They may call a drug recognition expert who will ask you to go through um, a battery of tests, which is a little bit slightly different than the field sobriety test. But there's one similarity. They're voluntary and you don't have to take them. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm I'm getting the theme here. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Let's go to post arrest. Okay. And now we have the vehicle motion, we have the first contact with the driver, and now we have um, the, the, the breath test or the blood test because that's the third phase of the investigation. Okay. Now, the, once the officer decides to arrest the driver, they're going to take the driver back to the police station. Now, if it's alcohol, they're going to ha- um, um, sit down with the driver and read the implied consent warnings. And basically, it's basically an interview, okay? They ask you if you've been drinking, last time you drank alcohol or consumed alcohol or marijuana. They're going to note how you look, your, whether you were cooperative. I would tell you, do, do not argue with law enforcement, okay? It does not help you. As a black man, I would never. I want to live. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I think this is, so, this is so important. Don't argue. If you're arguing... It could be viewed by a jury later on, if that's the way the case goes, that you are demonstrating impairment, <laughs> inability to Being control your intoxicated emotion. and belligerent. And yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Arguing does not help. You cannot win that argument. That's what the attorney is for. Right. Okay. At this point, you are trying to protect and preserve your rights as, as best as you can. Okay. So when you get to the station... And they, they begin to read the implied consent warnings. Um, that's a great time to request an attorney. You've, you should have already requested one during the initial questioning, during the, during the initial stop. Right. If you haven't, that may be a good time. Because during the implied consent warnings, they're also going to 
<clears throat> give you, they're going to give you the warning, tell you have the right to, to speak to an attorney again, but then they're going to ask you whether you want to take the breath test if it's an alcohol-related um, investigation. Now, we touched on some of the per se laws, 0 .08. There's also a law regarding refusal. If you refuse a breath test, you could be charged with DUI under the refusal statute. And this is the breath test post-arrest, not the field breath yes. test. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. I would suggest that you take that test because if you don't, your license will be automatically suspended by the Department of License for one year. Oof, okay. Stiff. Yeah. Okay. So just imagine someone who's who's trying to make sense of this discussion we're having, right? And they decide, you know, I haven't been drinking, but I'm not answering any questions. I want an attorney. And let's say they're arrested. They go to the station. They read their implied consent warnings. They're they're asked to participate in the breath test. They say no. Even if they beat the overall DUI, <laughs> based on um, the, the criminal investigation, the Department of License is a administrative process, which is separate from the criminal. So the administrative process could, um, the administrative law judge could suspend your license because you failed to comply with the, the implied consent statute, which requires you to take the breath test post-arrest at the station. Okay. So I've, I've heard a few consequences already. I've heard um, criminally that you could be arrested. And I've heard civilly that you could have your license suspended. What are some of the other consequences and costs involved with being charged with and, and defending a DUI? Well, the first cost is Generally, um, let's let's start with the administrative side. There is um, anyone who is cited for DUI will receive a notice from the Department of Licensing where they will make a decision whether or not your license will be suspended. And they're only basing their decision off the police reports. Okay? They don't interview witnesses. They're not going to speak to you. They're going to make a decision based on the citation. So you will receive a citation indicating if you're above 0 .08, then that your license will be suspended for 90 days beginning two to three weeks from the, the date of receipt of the letter. If you refused, you're going to to take the breath test. And again, this is the breath test post-arrest at the police station after being read your implied consent warnings. If you refuse to take that breath test, then the Department of Licensing will send you a letter indicating your license will be suspended for one year. So there's cost in that because it, to be able to drive with that suspended license, you're required to obtain SR2, uh, SR22 insurance, which is a high-risk insurance. It costs a lot more than your traditional insurance, and you will be required for those 90 days or that one-year suspension to have an ignition interlock device, which you have to breathe in every time you start your vehicle um, to demonstrate that you have no alcohol in your system. And that's the blow and go. Yes. Yeah. So that's initial cost right there, okay? Um, secondly, if you're the criminal track of a DUI, you're looking at hiring an attorney. 
Okay, that could be anywhere from three to seven thousand dollars, depending on where you live. And he, and you guys can't see him, but he's wearing a nice suit, so it's gonna be expensive to call this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but so I the I attorney. try to be reasonable. <laughs> uh, and so that's the initial cost. You know, if you can't afford an attorney, then you could get you will be appointed uh, an attorney. Um, at no cost, a public defender, but you have to meet a certain p- poverty threshold. Okay, so it could be a very significant um, expense, just the hiring it of an attorney. There's also fines associated with a, a DUI conviction, um, and those fines can range from a first-time DUI. There's a mandatory fine of $990.50. If you have two prior DUIs, then it could be upwards to um, – $2,945.50. Wow. Okay. And notice the 50 cents. They're trying to get every dime and nickel out of you, okay? So <laughs> they're, they're, they're not going to just round up or oh, down. Wow. Okay. Um, <clears throat> also, with DUIs, there's mandatory jail. So if you're convicted of DUI, um, uh, uh, no prior DUIs, you're required to do 24 hours in jail. Oof. Okay. Okay. If you have a second DUI within seven years, um, you're required to do 30 days in jail. Now, if you have two prior DUIs and you get a third DUI within seven years, you're required to do 90 days in jail. Okay, and the, and the judge could give you more. Okay, so those are some of the penalties associated with DUIs. Now, if you have a blood alcohol level of above 0.15, which most DUIs are. Really? Okay. Yes. Above 0.15. Okay. That's considered a enhanced DUI, and there's a, there's a mandatory minimum of 48 hours. That means two days in jail. So if you're above 0.08 but below 0.15, it's one day. If you're above 0.15, then it's a mandatory two, two days in jail. And you're saying most of these DUIs are above the 0.15 or at least at that level? Yes. Okay. (laughs) And so I've seen DUIs, um, you know, I've seen them as high as 0.38. My God, I don't even know how much, how much would one have to drink to get to a (laughs) 0.38? Well, those tolerance levels are are earned, right? These are individuals who have been consuming uh, large amounts of alcohol for long periods of time. So their tolerance is a little bit different. So you, some, some people are lightweights and they could, um, and they, they lose a lot of their functionality or awareness, maybe after two drinks. Right. It doesn't mean they're going to be above, above 0.08. But what I, what it means is that there are some people who can maybe take seven, eight shots and, they, they feel fine because they've developed a tolerance. Yeah. God, yeah. Please don't get behind the wheel. <laughs> so you, we, we talked a little bit about and if, if there's an accident. Sometimes that's how the situation will come to an officer's attention because there's an accident and then he decides to ask you these series of questions. So if someone is drinking or is cross-faded – and gets into a car accident um, or, God forbid, kills someone, are, you know, th- there would be consequences already for the accident, but are those consequences then increased because of the presence of drugs and alcohol? Like if, if 
if you are a sober driver and you hit and kill a pedestrian, is it one thing versus if you are not sober and you hit and kill a pedestrian? Like, is there is there a difference for those types of things? There is a there is a difference. Um, there's a there's a significant difference. So I you know I again I I don't want people out there drinking and driving. Okay, even as a as a criminal defense attorney, um, you know you keep us busy, <laughs> but I think that the safety of our roadways are very important. Um, if you are, are if you are intoxicated and you're driving and you're cited for DUI, and you haven't been involved in an accident, I think that might be a blessing. If you're unfortunate enough to drive and hurt someone, let's say you're in a car accident and you you injure your passenger, mm. then there's a possibility that you will not be charged with DUI, but you could be charged with vehicular assault. Okay, <clears throat> and when you start talking about <clears throat> vehicular assault, you put yourself in a position where you're talking about prison time. So not in jail time, prison time, friends, prison, prison time. <laughs> yes. So, and that's why I said that sometimes a DUI can be an eye-opening experience where it could identify um, a potential problem. Okay, that one person may not have been aware of. Now, if you are driving. And let's say that you said the difference between being impaired, okay? So there's two, there's three different ways that you can get a vehicular assault, okay? Let's say I'm driving and I am, you know, not paying attention and I come across um, an intersection and I just don't stop in time and I hit someone and injure them, okay? That's vehicular assault. Um, they call that disregard for the safety of others. Okay. And so the penalty, if I have no criminal history, it's a felony. The potential sentence is one to three months in jail. They have another way that you can commit vehicular assault. And that is you can create, you can commit it by driving in a reckless manner or while under the influence. Okay, there you go. Okay. Yeah. And so while disregard for the safety of others, there's a potential penalty of one to three months with the um, reckless prong or the DUI prong is three to nine months. Okay. okay. So it, it enhances. It, it actually enhances it. The penalties. Okay. Now, that's what we're talking about in terms of someone um, injuring someone. But let's, what happens if you are driving and you kill someone? Mm. Okay. Heaven forbid, yeah. Now that's where it gets very, very serious. Okay. If you're driving a vehicle and you're found to be um, intoxicated over the limit, then, and someone dies, vehicular homicide that's charged as a under the influence of an intoxicating liquor or any drug, including marijuana, then you're looking at a sentence of 78 months as the low end and the maximum sentence of 102 months. Wow. And that's for your first offense. Wow, that is significant. And I'm glad that it's significant. Yes. People should take it seriously. And so when we're having this discussion, I think it's important that, you know, a DUI is a very significant um, 
crime, but it's only a misdemeanor. And, you know, and the maximum sentence on a DUI is 364 days. There's a mandatory one day for the, for the lowest level. But if you're talking about vehicular homicide, you're looking at a potential sentence. The lowest is 78 months, which is a big difference. And it has a huge impact. You're talking about, you know, work, family, housing, everything gone. Right. And that's why I started out by saying, if you're going to go out and drink, the risk associated with the DUI are so significant that you should make plans. You utilize Uber, utilize Lyft or a friend who's not drinking because if, and God forbid that something bad happened, the consequences are huge. Yeah, and then they might not just be your consequences if someone else gets hurt. Yes. So that, that's the other thing. I have, I have just a, a few more questions for you here. Um, we've been talking a lot about people over the age of 21. What if you are under the age of 21 and you get um, charged with uh, or, or pulled over under suspicion of DUI or, or arrested? Is it, is it different for people under 21 versus over 21? It's a little bit different. And, and what we call that in, in the criminal defense world is called baby DUI, okay? It's a person under the age of 21 driving after consuming alcohol, okay? So there's no threshold of 0.08. The fact that you've consumed alcohol is enough. So I've had parents come to me and say, look, my son was charged with DUI. He's 17 years old. His blood al- uh, breath alcohol level was 0.02. And I say, well, he, he's not supposed to be drinking. And so the statute is written in a way that if you consume alcohol and you're under the age of 21, then they're not required to establish that you were above the threshold of 0.08. So it's like a, a different kind of per se rule. Just yes. the fact that you've been drinking at all. Yes. Right. And all the license ramifications, all those uh, consequences apply. All right. That's, yeah, that's tough. So So the kids... Don't do it. Don't don't drink at all. I think should be the takeaway for the young ones. Because young people who die, oh, who drink and drive, they also commit vehicular assault and vehicular homicide at higher rates. I don't know if they're higher rates, but um, you know the, the consequences. Let's say um, are significant still. You know, so if you're over the age of eighteen, then and let's say you're nineteen years old and you're drinking and driving and you happen to kill someone well 78 months to 102 months then you're in prison for that time yes so it it seems like uh, the kind of the kind of law i practice a win looks like okay now someone gets benefits um for you a win in this case i mean is, what does a win look like? I mean, is it really just sort of mitigating the consequences oftentimes? Is that, is that what it comes down to? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because a win from the defense perspective is a lot different from the community perspective, right? So you, if you're in an organization's Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, then what I consider a win will be considered a loss for them. But for my clients, one of the things I want my clients to do is be safe. 
you know, so it's important that if my clients can obtain a, a drug alcohol evaluation and there's a finding of no significant in issues with alcohol or drugs, that's a win for me. It's an internal win, okay? And that my client has not only received some education, but my client has identified that there's no issue, but there is a learning. There, there's a learning experience, okay? Now, <clears throat> I've always aimed to, you know, I, I want my client's case dismissed, you know, and 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 I want to defeat the state. I want, and my job is not just to win the case, but you know, I have to resist the charges against my client. That's what they're paying me to do. At the same time, uh, mitigation is also something that um, happens a lot. So let's say my client's charged with a DUI above 0.15. They're looking at two days mandatory in jail, $1,295.50 fine. Now, if I can get that reduced to a reckless driving, which um, <clears throat> has no mandatory jail, no mandatory fine, and instead of a, um, and I didn't mention this, but if you're above point. One five. There's also potential for additional license suspension, and um, um, up to a year. And a reckless driving only has thirty days. So there is some benefits where mitigating saves your client um, a possible license suspension. It helps your client um, avoid jail time, missing work, um, and it removes the stigma of a DUI off their record. Okay, so it sounds like there's there's some wiggle room or some room to wheel and deal, if you will. But you've you've said something a couple times during this conversation. I want to talk about that now um, in terms of resources. But you've, you've said, you know, maybe sometimes the DUI is an opportunity to, like, highlight an issue and address an issue. So, you know, for those um, folks out here listening who might have um, – you know, might have a DUI, might have a, or even haven't had any DUIs, but might be struggling with a substance abuse issue that could potentially lead them down the path to a DUI. Do you have any um, resources? Do you have any place that you send your clients? Any um, sort of rehab or, or groups that would be helpful? Yes. So most of the time, if a client is cited for DUI, it's going to be very helpful um, in navigating that potential incident if we um, get our clients a drug alcohol evaluation. <clears throat> a lot of our clients um, have insurance. And if our clients have insurance, uh, we love to use um, a treatment center um, named Lakeside Milam. What was that again? Lakeside Milam. Okay. And we'll um, put the links to that on the website as well and in the show notes. And uh, they do accept uh, most insurance. Um, they are very uh, skilled in um, completing evaluations for clients. They also, where I mean, there may be a situation where someone needs to participate in some treatment and they have those treatment programs available all the way up to inpatient treatment. Um, and so I developed some good relationships with some of their staff. Um, Walter Jones is an individual a counselor there with Lakeside Milam who's been very helpful for, um, in assisting my clients and, and ensuring that they, um, they never have to go back and, 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 um, and, and face a, a charge or allegation of DUI. 
There's also organizations that if you don't have insurance, a lot of clients may look for some low-cost options. And it doesn't mean that the services aren't subpar, but it's just lower cost. And so there is a organization um, called STOP, and they have locations throughout Washington. And it's S-T-O-P, STOP. And they provide alcohol drug evaluations. They do um, also provide treatment um, options for um, anyone who is facing a chemical dependency issue uh, or wants to be uh, determined whether it is an issue. And, and so that's a, a, a resource that I frequently uh, utilize for my clients. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, and let's, let's just take a few minutes now and, or a few moments now and talk about some key takeaways from today. Um, some of the key takeaways I have are don't, an- don't um, answer any questions without an attorney with you if you do get pulled over in one of these situations. Um, the field sobriety test is voluntary. The field breath test is voluntary. DUIs are costly. There's mandatory jail involved. And if you get into trouble, you should call my guest. And so, James, why don't you give them the plug? Where do they find you if, God forbid, they need you? <laughs> okay. Well, well, thank you for that. You know, um, we work throughout Washington State. Um, my website can be found at thecurtisfirm.com. We also have um, ability to um, reach out to clients if they want to call. Um, it's 253-327-1063. Or you can call 564-DEFENSE. Very easy to remember, 564-DEFENSE. You're going to reach our um, very welcoming um, paralegal who will assist you and make an appointment. Um, we do more than DUIs. Um, DUIs is something that frequently happens and and it's, I, I think it's a good idea to consult an attorney um, when being charged with DUI because of the effects it could have on your driving ability, transportation issues, insurance rates. It's really good to hire an attorney. Um, we also do everything from, you know, um, cases involving controlled substance. We do cases involving assault. We do cases involving uh, self-defense cases where there may be a homicide involved. Um, And uh, believe it or not, there are people who um, act in self-defense. And and so we're a very comprehensive law firm. um, And there's a lot of experience in our office. So we look forward to being able to um, assist um, our community and continue to assist our community. But I just want everyone to know that based on the topic that we discussed today, if you're going to be drinking, make alternative uh, transportation plans. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I hope to have you back on the show for other um, other episodes in the future. I would love that. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. And to everyone out there, have a happy holiday. Be safe. Don't drink and drive. Don't smoke and drive. There's so many other options for you. And there's nothing happier for the holidays than to have everybody safe and whole and not in jail. (laughs) Definitely not in jail. (laughs) Correct. All right. So uh, until next time, y'all, remember, if you don't get the system, the system is going to get you. Happy holidays. 
All right, this wouldn't be a legal podcast without a legal disclaimer, y'all. So remember, seek legal counsel for your specific situation and in your specific jurisdiction. Thank you all for listening. And remember, if you don't get the system, the system is going to get you. See y'all next time.